This is Matthew Chernoff, co-host of How the West Was Cast. Since you're listening to this podcast, chances are you love Western movies. And if you love Western movies, well, Western history is probably right up your alley too. So before we start the show, we'd like to recommend one of our favorite Western history podcasts. It's called The Wild West Extravaganza, and it's available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hosted by Josh Taylor, The Wild West Extravaganza chronicles the fascinating real-life history of some of the most famous people, places, and events in the Old West. From iconic figures like Billy the Kid, Jesse James, and Wyatt Earp, to stories about deadly range wars, bloody shootouts, and harrowing manhunts. Each episode is chock-full of interesting info. So after you finish listening to our podcast, be sure to give the Wild West Extravaganza a try. We think you'll be glad you did. And now, on with the podcast. Howdy, friends. You're listening to How the West Was Cast, a podcast dedicated to the best of the Western movie genre. I'm glad you did. Are you? Jim, what's eating you? Oh, we've got more at stake here than a bag of marbles. You mean you have? Jim, Lufton isn't dead. He isn't even hurt. And after that stampede, he hasn't got a chance. And why bother about me? Because I need you. You don't think Lufton would do business with me, do you? No, he'd rather lose his herd. Exactly. But today you stepped in and saved his life. He won't forget that. So when you ride up with an offer, he'll take it because he has to. No dice. Why not? It starts with your double cross of a bunch of poor, jug-headed homesteaders and the hiring of gun hands. It goes on to your making love to a man's daughter to get her to turn against her own father in your try for Lufton today. It goes past that to the death of Chris Barden's son and it winds up right here with Reardon waiting outside to see if I go with you or if he shoots me in the back. I've seen dogs wouldn't claim you for a son, Tate. That was Robert Mitchum squaring off against Robert Preston in the atmospheric 1948 western Blood on the Moon, which is our topic on this episode of How the West Was Cast. Hello, my name is Matthew Chernoff, and I'm a screenwriter and an entertainment journalist in Los Angeles. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson, a film historian and the chair of the Department of Film and Media Arts at the University of Utah. Now, as most listeners of this podcast know, Blood on the Moon was directed by Oscar winner Robert Wise. And thanks to its dark psychological underpinnings, it's often characterized as the quintessential film noir western. Joining us to discuss this influential classic is author, biographer, and noir expert Alan K. Rohde whose latest book, titled Blood on the Moon, is about to be published by the University of New Mexico Press. It's part of the Real West series, a collection of new volumes of film scholarship edited by our very own Andrew Patrick Nelson. We'll include a link to purchase the book in the show notes for this episode. And with that said, I think it's time we say hello to Alan K. Rohde.
Alan K. Rohde is a self-described classic Hollywood concierge and one of today's most capable and compelling guides to the history of American movie making. The charter director of the Film Noir Foundation, he has been the producer and host of the annual Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival since 2008, and has hosted and programmed classic cinema events for a range of other organizations, including the American Cinematheque and the UCLA Film and Television Archive. He has produced, written, and appeared in documentaries and commentary tracks for many DVD and Blu-ray releases, and is the author of two acclaimed biographies, Charles McGraw, Film Noir Tough Guy, and Michael Curtiz, Life in Film. As is apparent from that biography, Rhodey is an authority on film noir, a retrospective grouping of post-war Hollywood crime and detective films distinguished by their dark style and even darker subject matter. This style and subject matter also found its way into other genres, including the Western, in films of the late 40s like Pursued, Yellow Sky, and Ramrod. Perhaps the best of this cycle of noir westerns is also the subject of Rhodey's newest book, Blood on the Moon. Directed by Robert Wise and starring Robert Mitchum, Blood on the Moon finds a traditional, if somewhat existentialist, Western hero in a noir-like netherworld of double crosses, government corruption, shabby barrooms, gun-toting goons, and romantic betrayals. Against a dramatic backdrop that includes the ascendant careers of Mitchum and Wise and the tumultuous history of RKO Studios, Rhodey explores how the commingling of the noir style with the Western genre crystallized into a single extraordinary film. Alan Rhodey, welcome to How the West Was Cast. Andrew, thank you very much for that introduction, and thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Now, Blood on the Moon is not what we would call a forgotten film. It's been commercially available, pops up in various histories, Hollywood, the Western, noir, the careers of Mitchum and Wise. But it has not been examined in any depth until now. So why do you think Blood on the Moon has been comparatively neglected? And why was it an important movie for you to write about? Well, I think it kind of got lost in the post-war film noir and World War II movies and so forth. One of the points I made in the book is how the cultural changes in Hollywood, in America, and so forth really affected the Western genre. And I think Blood on the Moon, uh, the reason I wrote about it is, one, I really like the movie. I'm a huge Robert Mitchum fan. I'm a huge admirer of the work of Robert Wise. And way back when, many years ago, when I first started on this journey of doing whatever it is I do, I actually called Robert Wise cold called him. And uh, I hadn't written anything. I hadn't. I just wanted to talk to him about his early films with Val Luton and Born to Kill with the fearsome Lawrence Tierney and that. And he talked to me on the phone for an hour. Wow. Not even knowing who I was, whatever, explaining why he made the films and that Val Luton was such a mentor to him and everything. So I have a real soft spot for, for Bob Wise. You know, most directors of that era, uh, a lot of them are not going to be in the nice. This this was a this was a great director, and he was a really a nice guy. Right. I mean, a lot of these directors, John Ford, Curtiz, even Willie Wyler, they're not known for being nice guys. But but Robert Wise was a great director who was also a very nice person and very well thought of by everybody. So so I have a, a soft spot in my heart for Bob Wise, but. 
getting back to Blood and the Moon, I really thought that it was a unrecognized film or unacclaimed film. I think it was recognized for being good yeah. and and being relevant in the filmography of Robert Mitchum. It also was Robert Wise's first A movie after laboring uh, as an editor for, for many years. I mean, he edited Citizen Kane. He edited The Hunchback of Notre Dame. This was a guy who started out on the loading dock of RKO, humping film cans yeah. to win Academy Awards and so forth. I mean, this is a career path that will never be replicated again in today's Hollywood. So I thought the film was recognized as being good, but not distinctive. And I think what makes it distinctive is the storyline, the caricatures, where you could take Robert Mitchum in the beginning riding lonesome on a horse in Sedona in the pouring rain, and all he has is his hat, a six-shooter, uh, a sleeping bag, and his kit. And I just thought that was so analogous to Raymond Chandler's line in Farewell, My Lovely, where he says, Philip Marlowe needed money in the bank and a home in the country and so forth. And he says, what I had was a hat, a coat, and a gun. <laughs> and I think you could take the beginning of that movie and take Mitchum out of Sedona, take his Stetson away, give him a fedora, and put a trench coat on him, and he could be prowling the back alleys of L.A. or Beverly Hills as Philip Marlowe. The plot is incidental. And in the first five minutes of the movie, before you understand what the hell's going on, you meet Mitchum, he almost gets killed by a cattle stampede, loses everything he owns, and then all of a sudden he's with these other characters, and you start to get a sense of things are not quite what they seem, or are they, which is kind of an entree and a trope into so many film noirs. So I think the influence of the film noir style really permeates Blood and the Moon, and that's what really intrigued me to write about it. Mitchum the last of the tough guys meets Rampling, the hottest of the new broads, in Raymond Chandler's sizzling murder classic, Farewell, My Lovely. Philip Marlowe, the most famous private eye of them all, is up to his eyeballs in murder. And he's everybody's favorite target. I need a lot of life insurance. I need a home in the country. I need a vacation. I've got a hat, a coat, and a gun. That's it. Now, we could, of course, have a very long conversation about what film noir is and isn't, but, you know, that's a conversation for another day. <laughs> People have made their careers and gotten doctoral theses out on defining film noir, which uh, I think that whole debate kind of energizes what film noir is. I I'll tell you what film noir is from a perspective of someone that loves movies. Yeah is film noir has provided a connectivity to a younger generation to classic film. Mm. I mean, film noir has become popular, you know, Eddie Muller's uh, Noir Alley show, all of this stuff, because film noir, despite the fact that, you know, a 20-year-old may not understand why a doctor in a delivery room is smoking a cigarette and why the phones are the size of steering wheels and why do all these men wear these hats and so forth, 
the basic human foibles of lust, larceny, greed, jealousy, all of that stuff is so much part of the noir sensibility. And as much as life has changed, the nature of people uh, really hasn't changed that much at all. Well, I suppose there's also a, a kind of direct relationship between a, a film that we recognize as being stylistically dark, is a stylistic darkness telling us something thematic about what's going on. So we don't actually encounter darkness in too many films outside of, say, the, the horror genre. So that that alone, I, I think, means something to viewers unfamiliar with the, let's say, the social context. Right. I, I, I tend to agree with you. And I think when Wise made the film, his director of photography that he chose was Nicholas Musaraka, who was like the master. If I had to name the two cinematographers most identified with film noir, I'd put John Alton one, Nick Musaraka two. Yeah. And, and he deliberately chose Musaraka. And in fact, a lot of the film is actually shot at night. Because he said, as, as Wise told me, he said, I was looking for that dark, shaded look. You know, the, the town itself, this isn't like a bustling town of Dodge City where people are bustling and walking down the street and saddling horses and loading feed. This is a deserted, dirty town called Sundust. I love that name, Sundust. And it's, you know, shabby bar rooms, people that are suspicious a range war that's been contrived as a ripoff involving government officials. What's more noir than that? <laughs> I like how you you describe the film as a Western shot in the noir style. So, you know, as a film historian, I tend to think that the best way to think about noir is as a style as opposed to, you know, something it wasn't like a, like a genre. And there's, there's a line in the book that I, I really like. And where you, you're, you're talking about what makes Blood on the Moon kind of unique. And you say, the key discriminator in Blood on the Moon is less about what occurs and more about how and why. And I, I think you do a great job in the book of talking about how we, we see, in some ways, conventional Western characters, conventional Western landscapes. But the style really affects them. In, in some ways, it drains something out of them. Uh, the, the landscape in particular you describe as kind of uninspiring, which is a strange thing to say about a Western shot in Sedona. Yeah, in fact, Wise said Sedona was so beautiful that he said, you know, there were times where we shook our heads and said, well, w only if we could have filmed it in color. Of course, there was no money for that, but that would have changed the whole movie. And, and in addition, because of the scheduling, they filmed it in the wintertime. So in the book, I detailed the delays, the frustration, and I think Wise at one point said, we chased the sun all over the valley, and he was getting three weather reports, one from the National Weather Service, one from somewhere else, one from L.A., and he said they never agreed with one another, and they were always wrong. So they would start shooting in one place, it would start raining or be so overcast they couldn't shoot, so they would move someplace or go back to the hotel and rehearse. And in a lot of cases, they just filmed it. So the film has that dark cast look that we associate with film noir.
stepping back maybe a step to, to talk about this film as a Western, what I love about the book is how it broadens our understanding of the Western during its heyday, beyond the you know authorial constructed canon of Ford and Hawks and Mann and maybe Shane and High Noon, let's say. But it also made me think about how, you know, with the exception of a few films, maybe Red River and My Darling Clementine, we don't tend to focus on the 1940s as a vibrant period of Western filmmaking, but this film kind of attests to this being a really interesting moment before the Western becomes whatever it is in the 50s. Uh, I, I think so, because you, you can't really overestimate the amount of change wrought in the American society and the movies by World War II. Everything was just so completely different. And anyone that went through the war, whether they served in uniform or under fire, whatever they did, they were not the same people by the end of the war. Things had changed. And I think part of that change is people wanted more realism and more authenticity in their entertainment that wasn't necessarily a musical or an Abbott and Costello comedy or, or something like that. And one of the comments I made is the diversions of wartime cinema, which was a boom period for Hollywood, the horror movies and the uh, Andy Judge Hardy and, and, and Mickey Rooney arguing over some trivial thing that was a, a family type of thing. And John Hall and Maria Montez in Arabian Nights costume on a, on a universal backlot with dueling swords. All of that kind of went away and you saw a much more serious tone. And I think that really affected the American Western, where you started seeing, and this was the first sign of it, where Mitchum is not the traditional hero. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of credit for that has to go to Frederick Glidden, a.k.a. Luke Short. Because Luke Short, I think, I, I forget the count, I think eight of his novels were eventually adapted into movies. Yeah. And this was his first effort. And one of the interesting side stories of this is how he tried to get started in the movies, but he would not accept short money. Right. And there's a lot of going back and forth with his agent, who was Swanee Swanson, who was a legendary literary agent. He was like the literary agent representing writers like Hemingway and uh, R.W. Burnett and Cornell Woolrich and uh, infinitely patient, but he's explaining to Glidden, you got to start, you don't have a track record. And Glidden was like, well, you know what? I, tell them I'll kill Japanese if they give me 750 a week, but I'm not working for 500 a week. And then the whole circumstances of how this movie got made, because it was a, it was a script that was tossed on a stack of discards at RKO and then several years later, uh, Robert Wise and his uh, partner in this enterprise, Theron Wirth, who was the nominal producer, but they both came up in the editing department at RKO, and Wirth produced, Wirth actually did some of the second unit direction on this film. Uh, they found this script and, and felt that this was a great story they could put on screen that RKO had, had missed on it. And as it turned out, they were right. So... I think this was the beginning of a different kind of Western. And I think we see this evolving through the Tony Mann, Jimmy Stewart Westerns, uh, starting with Winchester 73 and the man from Laramie with these very hard bitten, tough characters. 
And even John Ford, if you measure between Wagon Master and the Searchers, yeah. look at the difference in the characters and the starkness. There, it was a different kind of Western than the ones that were made in the 1930s, I think. No, no absolutely. I mean, a, a common history of the Western in the 50s is that it becomes darker and more psychological in nature with more emphasis placed on the, you know, the troubled inner state of the hero, right. you know, possibly as some kind of metaphor for returning veterans. But you, you make a good point that this film, Blood on the Moon, along with some of those other noir westerns I mentioned, actually predate the Anthony Manns, you know, the gunfighter, the searchers. Yeah. Is there a case to be made that Blood on the Moon influence these subsequent developments or is it just a part of a larger transformation in America? I, I would I would tend to think that it's part of a larger transformation, but Blood on the Moon was relatively successful. Yeah. And we all have to remember that Hollywood then and now has always been a much more imitative entity than a creative one. So if something works, it's going to get copied as nauseam. You know, I'm surprised we haven't seen Godzilla versus Rocky 24. You know, I mean, they just copy stuff that works and they'll keep putting it out as long as it makes money. And so uh, to that degree, did Blood and the Moon influence that? I mean, I think Pursued came out a little before Blood on the Moon. Yeah, 47. Pursued, though, uh, although it is dark and it is Robert Mitchum and it's Raoul Walsh and James Wong Howe and so forth, it struck me as much more as a psychological film to the point where your sense of disbelief on some of the reactions of the characters, it stretches it to the breaking point in some things. Although it's a very it's a very entertaining film and it's and it certainly fits into that phylum, if you will, that we're talking about. I mean that's a film that's very explicitly Freudian in the sense of you know repressed memories and flashbacks and so on. So it seems you know much more of its time and in, in some of its subject matter. So Mitchum is a new kind of Western hero. Roger Ebert once called Mitchum the soul of noir. Many people consider him the king of film noir, a reputation he earned starring in films like Out of the Past and Angel Face and Night of the Hunter. Yet, as you point out in the book, Mitchum actually got his start in Westerns. Yeah. And he continued to make them throughout his career with increasing frequency as he aged, which was not uncommon for actors of his vintage. So how was it that he was able to excel in both Westerns and noir? Is there some core star persona that transcends both? Or do you think you think he was different? He I think Mitchum was a very underrated actor. And he took acting very seriously, although he never wanted to give anybody the impression that he took anything seriously. Yeah. I think there's a story when uh, he was in El Dorado with Wayne. And Hawks was a director, and Hawks said something to him like, you know, you pretend not to give a shit, but you're the hardest working son of a gun that I've ever, uh, actor I've ever had. And Mitchum just went, shh, don't tell anybody, you know. His persona as the laconic guy that marched to the beat of his own drummer, his character in uh, Blood on the Moon, very similar. Yeah. Very similar. And 
one of the points I make is extrapolating to Mitchum getting busted for pot right after this film was completed. Yeah. In those days, a bust for marijuana was serious business. Uh, you know, marijuana was viewed as a dangerous drug, and there were stories of maybe Mitchum's an addict and he needs help because he liked to smoke, you know, smoke a joint. And that was the way things were. And of course, Howard Hughes came to the rescue with lawyers and all this stuff. But it was really the fact that people liked Mitchum on screen. He was so appealing yeah. that people just said, you know what? The hell with it. And in fact, his popularity increased. Yes. You know, where before in Hollywood scandals, if someone had done something, they were kind of thrown on the scrap heap. And Hughes didn't do that with Mitchum, and rightfully so, because his popularity increased. Because in Blood on the Moon, he plays a character that seemingly his alliances shift, but they do so in a moral way. And he really finds his character really finds true north with Barbara Bel Geddes, who sees the inner person and not the exterior. And I think that whole relationship in Blood on the Moon between Barbara Bel Geddes and Mitchum is handled in a very adult manner. Yeah, I mean, it's somewhat fanciful because, you know, movies itself are fanciful, but the whole thing where she kind of reaches out to him at a certain point and can see the true character, that he's not just a cattle bum or a gunslinger and a and a no good, that he is a man of good character who's trying to do the right thing. And I think that aura of Mitchum always shines true. Yet, in the mid-50s, he played one of his greatest roles as an absolute, regenerate, horrible person as the preacher in The Night of the Hunter. Here is all the stark terror, the passion and suspense, the heart-pounding warmth of the best-selling novel that gripped millions Superb, unforgettable performances by an extraordinary array of talent. The combined powers of Paul Gregory and Charles Lawton brought the King Mutiny Court Martial to Broadway. Now the screen receives that same creative, electrifying impact. The Night of the Hunter. And, uh, and his favorite director of all time was Charles Lawton. Now, you talk about two people that are completely opposite from one another, but they really respected, he respected the hell out of Lawton, was very fond of him, and likewise, and uh, as Mitchum told it, when they were going to cast this uh, Night of the Hunter, Charles said, Bob, I have to tell you that this character of the minister is an absolute shit. And Mitchum said, present, raised his hand. <laughs> so uh, uh, he... Mitchum had more range than yeah. people thought him for. And, and of course, because Howard Hughes stuck by him, he stuck by RKO and Howard Hughes, even though Howard Hughes put him in some of these really ridiculous yeah. kind of comic book type films that I can go back and look and be fond of movies like His Kind of Woman and Macau. But they're really ridiculous. They're, they're kind of like comic book characters. But Hughes stuck by him when his career was hanging by a thread, and he stuck by Hughes. Even though he, he nicknamed him, as he always did, he used nicknames for people. He called Hughes the Phantom as he became more reclusive. <laughs> Legendary actor Robert Mitchum is dead tonight. He starred in more than 100 films in a career that spanned six decades, 
He's seen here in the movie The Longest Day in 1962. Mitchum did it all, appearing in war movies, westerns, comedies, and dramas. The actor had emphysema and lung cancer. He died in his sleep this morning at his home in Santa Barbara. Robert Mitchum was 79. Um, you, you tell, you retell a very funny story in the book. That's the story that Robert Wise always told about one of the film's co-stars, Walter Brennan, when Mitchum first appeared in his Joe DeYoung costume on set. Which is, uh, I'm kind of, well, I'll let you tell the story, but I, I always find that story so striking because, yeah, well, you know, Wise used Joe DeYoung that some of your listeners may be familiar with, but he was probably the top Western costumer involved in the movies. And I know he did, I think he did some of DeMille's movies, maybe Northwest Mounted Police. I know he did Shane. And he really knew what Western garb looked like. And Wise had him for Blood on the Moon. And when Mitchum first walked in to the set early on, and Walter Brennan has a key supporting role in the movie, and Brennan was kind of a student of the West and uh, did a lot of reading. And Mitchum walks in with his chaps, his his Stetson, dirty, greasy hair, three days growth of beard. And Brennan looked at him and said, that's the goddamnedest realist cowboy I ever seen, you know. And that's something coming from Walter Brennan, who by that time had won three Academy Awards for Best Supporting Actor and had been in a hundred movies and had either seen or done everything possible on a movie set or on location. So that was a significant compliment for both DeYoung and Mitchum. Uh, maybe let's turn to, to Robert Wise, the director. Not associated with the Western, directed only two. Right. Uh, the other being Tribute to a Bad Man in 56 with James Cagney. Likewise not known uh, as a Western star. Today, Wise is probably best remembered as a director of Spectacles, The Day There's Sotil, The Haunting, West Side Story, Sound of Music, uh, Star Trek, The Motion Picture. Also probably remembered as the guy who supposedly butchered the Magnificent Ambersons. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I touched on that. I didn't I yeah. didn't want to turn that into a thing. And, and well, adherents of Orson Welles will read that and pay no attention and yeah. say that I'm wrong. And Wise was just doing his job. Yeah. And and maybe someday we'll, we'll find that cut of the film in Brazil. Yeah, somewhere. they're uh, they're still looking for it. Uh, TCM has engaged some people that are foraging in South America, oh, still looking for that print. Uh, you uh, know, I, I, very analogous to uh, Captain Ahab and the White Whale. But uh, yeah. more power to him. <laughs> so you mentioned earlier that this this film was something of a turning point in Wise's career. So maybe just tell us some more about who Robert Wise was. In 1948, before he sort of ascended to the upper echelons of Hollywood directing royalty. Robert Wise grew up and he was a moviegoer. And uh, his father lost his job, uh, meatpacking job. The Depression wiped him out. And Wise had an older brother who had come to Hollywood and was working in the RKO accounting department. So Wise came there in the very early 30s, I think 32 maybe, and he got a job basically humping film cans on the loading dock. And from there, he got into the sound department. And in fact, one of his first jobs is the 
early RKO films with the tower, he dubbed in the beeps from the did it did it. And so he was a sound guy. He wanted to get into editing. And fortunately, he was put with a really experienced editor who actually let him do the editing. And in those days, the editors guarded their turf jealously. And, and to, be a, to be a young guy to actually move up and edit a feature film at a studio, you had to wait for somebody to die and then move in there. But this guy really tutored him. Apparently, this fellow was an episodic alcoholic and you know, he kind of handed Wise the baton. So Wise became a really well sought after editor and was hired by Orson Welles himself to edit Citizen Kane and was nominated for an Oscar. And that really made his reputation in Hollywood. He itched to direct and he lobbied for a long time. He would direct little parts of films and so forth. But he finally got his start directing with Val Luton. Uh, what happened was is uh, Val Luton, he worked with Val, and who was the producer, and was making these low-budget fantasy horror films for like, you know, $120,000 or something. And Charles Corner, who had taken over RKO and gotten rid of Wells and so forth, he let uh, Luton, as long as Luton stuck to the budget, uh, Corner would give him a cliché title and do that. And so Luton made a lot of money with Cat People which was a very minor film that has become a, a cult classic yeah. uh, and still is. And that made like, you know, uh, several million dollars, which was a film that cost $120,000. So that he got his own unit, Luton did, and Wise came in there and uh, had somebody directing Curse of the Cat People. Uh, the guy went behind schedule, which was original sin at RKO on a B movie. He was fired. Wise, Wise got thrown into the breach, did well, finished the film. And he directed two more films for Luton, uh, Mademoiselle Fifi, and then the one with Boris Karloff. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, The Body Snatcher, which I think has Karloff's best performance as a dramatic actor, not as a monster, and just a great film. But he was stuck in the B unit, Wise was, and he was doing films that he necessarily didn't want to do and as he put it in an interview, you know, you could turn one or two down and then they'd say, come on, you're under contract. You got to do this. And so he also said, you know, if you're not working, you're not learning. So he did this. So the blood on the moon phenomenon was that he found the script and he went to Dory Sherry, who was the head of production and a much more enlightened production head than some of the other people that Wise worked for. And in fact, many of the other people at the other studios and uh, Sherry supported him. An interesting side story is that Wise's own agency went to Sherry and tried to push Wise out of directing the movie. And Sherry said, no, this was Bob Wise's project. He's going to direct it. They were trying to service Jacques Tourneur, who was a, a much higher profile director in Mitchum. And they wanted Jimmy Stewart, but RKO couldn't afford Jimmy Stewart. So Blood on the Moon was really Wise's first shot at it a production. And when you think this was the first time he had to take a company to Sedona, he had bad weather, he had to go up to Iverson's ranch, he had to go all these different locations with wranglers, stunts, back projection, all this stuff. And he actually finished the film on time, but went considerably over budget, probably over $100,000 over budget. 
But because of the poor planning by RKO forcing him to go to Arizona in the winter, he really did a great job in handling these different units. And when you see the, the chase through the snow, it's very cleverly done where you have background actors being filmed actually in Colorado in wardrobe and then close-ups of the actors like Charles McGraw and uh, Robert Preston in the studio at Pathé. And he really, uh, you could see the editing kicked in because he really matched all these shots very, very well. Uh, you know, unless you're used to watching movies and have something, you really, you can't, it's not immediately evident that a lot of this stuff was done at the studio and then matched with second unit stuff. So this really made Wise's reputation as a someone who could handle a complex A production with a legitimate movie star who was Mitchum. And from there, he made what might be one of his best films, The Setup, which I think is probably the best film ever made on the subject of boxing, which has become a rich panoply of cinema from The Crowd Roars to Rocky and beyond. It's always been, uh, boxing has been such a dramatic backdrop for so many movies, but The Setup is a great movie. And he made that. And then he said, I had to get out of RKO because Howard Hughes bought the studio and there was no future for me or anybody else there. But on the strength of that, Daryl Zanuck offered him a contract at 20th Century Fox because he had seen Blood on the Moon. And it was obviously a quality picture. So Wise himself said, if it wasn't for Blood on the Moon, I might not have gotten my contract at Fox. And then he went on to make The Day the Earth Stood Still and a lot of distinguished pictures. And as Hollywood changed and successful directors had more and more power and the ability to design and choose and produce their own projects, as I wrote in the book, Robert Wise was right a lot more than he was wrong on the pictures he chose to direct into the 1960s. And of course, after he made West Side Story, and then The Sound of Music, which was the biggest box office hit of all time. He could make whatever he wanted after that. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the five nominees for the best achievement in direction are J. Lee Thompson for The Guns of Navarone, Robert Rossen for The Hustler, Stanley Kramer for Judgment at Nuremberg, Federico Fellini for La Dolce Vita, Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins for West Side Story. And the winners are Robert Wise and Jerome Robbins for West Side Story. I'm fortunate enough to have had some of the best directors and the, most, and the world's most creative men, so therefore I'm quite proud and happy to present the award for the best achievement in directing. The nominees are William Wyler for The Collector, John Schlesinger for Darling, David Lean, Dr. Zhivago, Robert Wise for The Sound of Music, and Hiroshi Toshigahara for Woman in the Dunes. The winner is Robert Wise, Sound of Music. So it's not an overstatement then to say that this is the film that really set the stage for the rest of Wise's career. Absolutely. This, yeah. this was the film. This was Blood on the Moon was like if you if you think a, a director or a star or an artist has a door that they go through 
that door had blood on the moon stenciled on it. And he just stepped through that. And this blood on the moon set the stage for all of his later success. There's no question about that. Now, one of the other great things about your book is how you really give credit to I'd say all the contributions of the key cast and crew, but one person I was especially pleased to see, given some really kind of sensitive attention, was Roy Webb, the film's uh, composer. Who, Absolutely. You know, you know, has been overlooked in histories of Hollywood scoring. He's a guy who spent most of his career at RKO, scored many horror films, including ones for Val Luton, only a few Westerns. Another Western score listeners of this podcast might know is from uh, Tall on the Saddle. Tell, tell us a little bit more about why we should know more about Roy Webb and what does his music contribute to Blood on the Moon? I think Roy Webb has been in the whole renaissance of appreciation for the Max Steiners and Benny Herman and all of these great composers. He's been completely forgotten. I think part of that is because he spent a lot of time at RKO, which was not a high visibility studio. And he didn't work on really high-profile pictures. Uh, I think the, his biggest claim to fame would have been the score for Alfred Hitchcock's Notorious right. that was produced at RKO. But his, his music always set a tone and a mood. And when you watch Blood on the Moon, the music really plays a key role in where you have a, a, a long shot of Mitchum riding across the Sedona Valley, and you have this very pastoral type music, almost kind of reminiscent of Victor Young uh, in, in Shane, that type of pastoral Western music. And then when it came to the dramatic scenes, particularly the fight between uh, Robert Preston and Mitchum, which I think is one of the great fight scenes in Westerns, because it's so realistic. Very brutal. It's not... It's not, it's brutal. It's two desperate men in the dark trying to kill one another. Yeah. Uh, it's not, uh, forgive me, uh, uh, I love Shane, but it's not Alan Ladd at five foot seven bouncing home runs off of Big Ben Johnson and knocking <laughs> him through the, you know, I, I yeah. mean, that's great entertainment, but it's not necessarily authentic. And I think that the music that Roy Webb composed for not only Blood on the Moon, but a, a, a number of other films, you mentioned the Val Luton films and, and the mood and everything. Very, very underrated. He was very close to Max Steiner, who was the music director there. The other person that did all the orchestrated uh, orchestration of these scores was uh, Gilbert Grau, who's not anywhere in the credits. Uh, but he did the orchestration. And I, I talked to a music film historian who actually went through and saw that Gilbert Grau orchestrated uh, Blood on the Moon and did that. So I think Roy Webb has been, uh, his scores for The Locket, uh, Out of the Past, but just very, very underrated and underappreciated. So I wanted to give, you know, movies, movie making is collaborative. And I don't doubt that there's certainly something to the auteur theory uh, but with all due respect to Andrew Saris and his book about directors that everyone carried around like a Bible that was a cynist in the 1960s, there's so much garbage written about the auteur theory that it's just uh, a lot of it is just that's not how movies were made then. And there's not how movies are made now. Uh, certainly the director has a theme and has a vision and is the main guy. There's no doubt about that. And certainly directors like John Ford, Hitchcock, and others 
had a permanent imprint of a style and themes that they went back to again and again. But movies are a collaborative enterprise. And uh, in Blood on the Moon, you had Roy Webb, you had Nick Musaraka, you had Joe DeLong. I mean, you had a whole group of people coming together and working on the direction of Robert Wise to make the movie. Now, the, uh, the first thing that anyone listening to this podcast who hasn't seen Blood on the Moon will do is go out and watch the movie. The next thing they will do is, of course, buy your book. That's a good thing. <laughs> After they do that, though, what other films, so Westerns, Noirs, other films, do you think people should seek out that they might not have seen? You know, I mean, saying that people should watch John Ford Westerns, if you like Westerns, that's like, you know, saying... You know, the Mona Lisa was a good painting. You know, it is, you know I, I don't think that's the real advice you're looking for from me. But I really uh, appreciate uh, the work of Anthony Mann in the 50s, starting with Devil's Doorway. Yes. Which is a really underrated, underappreciated film. And the reason that it's not in vogue today is you have Robert Taylor playing a Native American. Yeah, red face. That, yeah, that doesn't that doesn't play well with modern audiences for, for a lot of reasons that we'll, we're aware of. But I thought it was a very, very unusual and, uh, to use a word, progressive movie for its time. And then the, the Westerns he did with, uh, with Jimmy Stewart, uh, Winchester 73, The Far Country, The Man from Laramie, Bend of the River. I think those Westerns really, really hold up. And I think the climax of all of this, of Man, uh, Tony Mann's work, is Man of the West. Yeah. Gary Cooper, in a role that fits him like a gun fits a holster, as the Man of the West. Sith, a man who tried to forget his killer past, until an evil old man and a ruthless gang made him remember it's a rare, extraordinary Western, crackling with the most electrifying scenes you've ever thrilled to. Now, that is a very dark, and the only problem with Man of the West is that Gary Cooper was too old. With all due respect to Gary Cooper, one of the greatest movie star actors, he was just a bit too old. But uh, talking about great fight scenes, there's one between him and Jack Lord in that, and, uh, and Lee Cobb playing, you know, you, you could have subtitled that movie, Johnny Friendly and Wagons West, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, Lee Cobb chewing the scenery, but it's, it's enjoyable. I mean, it's, it's very good. So those Anthony Mann movies, and then of course, Andre de Toth. Yes. Uh, Ramrod, where he takes the stereotypical Western and puts it on its head because the heavy and the dark character is a woman, Veronica Lake. Yes. Who happened to be Detoth's wife at the wife time? Wife at the time, and that yes. that is a that is a startling movie to watch if you don't know anything about it, and you watch her character do certain things like kill a bunch of people, <laughs> yeah, because of her manipulation of people, not actually doing it, but making it happen. Very, very interesting. And then 
uh, another, uh, De Toth made a number of distinctive Westerns. Springfield Rifle is another one at Warner Brothers. He did several Westerns there. And then Day of the Outlaw. Yes. Uh, which Mike McGreevy, who I know slightly, was was in that as a boy actor. Tina Louise was in there, as, and she's still with us. I interviewed her for my Curtiz book. And that movie has my favorite film noir stars, Robert Ryan. I don't think anyone could bring across more incandescent rage that was authentic better than Robert Ryan. And ironically, he wanted to be in Monaco, being Cary Grant in a, in a Hitchcock movie. But he said, I don't have the face for that. I'm fated to be shooting a Western in Durango, eating bad food. And he was right. But uh, Ryan was a great actor and Day of the Outlaw, he really takes over there. So the work of De Toth and the work of Tony Mann, those are some Westerns that they made that I would recommend. I, th- I think that's, I think those are great recommendations. I've said this before on this podcast, but I, I think I actually prefer films like Devil's Doorway or The Furies or Man of the West to, to Man's. Oh, the Furies is, Furies is good. You can't top Barbara Stanwyck. No. So I, I, th- I think that's a great recommendation. I, I introduced Day of the Outlaw at the Autry a number of years ago, and people were really struck by uh, Burl Ives playing the heavy. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, it's amazing. It's amazing. And that one speech that Ryan gives to Alan Marshall, yeah. where he says, I want to know what you're going to do. And he comes down and he gives this, we were here before you, and now you're telling us we don't belong, while you were back east hugging your pot-bellied stoves. <laughs> and I, I mean, it's, exactly. it's so good. It's yep. so Ryan was so good, yeah. so good. No, that's a great picture. And I remember spending time with uh, Ernie Borgnine. Hmm and uh, Nehemiah Persoff, and how much they admired Bob Ryan, who, despite all of these reactionary roles, was a real robust liberal Hmm. and so forth. And uh, Mickey Knox told me when he was working on The Longest Day, he actually had to break up a fight between Ryan and John Wayne over (laughs) politics, you know. Uh, uh, He said it it was really funny, you know, really funny. I guess uh, they would have had to have probably agreed to disagree in that instance. Oh, they did. They did. I mean, <laughs> they got along. In fact, uh, Ryan's daughter told me that at one point, Ryan was on a radio show with Marsha Hunt and some other people, and they were just reading the manifesto or the writings of the John Birch Society hmm. on how over the top it was. And, and I want to get too deep into politics. But at any rate, there were a bunch of death threats to Ryan and some of the other people involved with this radio broadcast. So uh, Lisa Ryan told me they're they're at that house and her father was gone and John Wayne shows up at the house with a rifle to protect Robert Ryan. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it was, it was, it was a different time. It was a different time, but uh, yeah, John, John Wayne, although his politics might've been to the right of Genghis Khan, he was a hard guy not to like. Well, and that's, yeah, well, it's certainly one thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast. I'm a, a partial to the Duke, let's say. Th- th- those are great recommendations, Alan. I, I think that uh, if folks are familiar with those later Westerns, they would really benefit by watching Blood on the Moon and some of those other Westerns I mentioned earlier, uh, Ramrod, which you said, Pursued, Yellow Sky. Oh, Yellow Sky is great. Bill Wellman. Of course, the ultimate Bill Wellman Western is the Oxbow Incident 
which I talk about in the book that I think set the stage for yes. Blood on the Moon and, and so on and so forth. And that yeah. that's just a great movie. Oh, absolutely. So I think I think there's a kind of, you know, for our listeners of this podcast, a kind of almost alternative history of the Western that isn't really that alternative because these were mainstream films that audiences were turning out yeah. to see. But we just, you know, sometimes overlook them when we, we have that auteurist mindset that great Westerns were only made by you know, John Ford or so on. Yes, that is true. And, and, uh, and certainly John Ford was John Ford and there can't be, there can't be any debate about that, but there's a lot more out there that people can discover. And a good place to begin discovering that is with blood on the moon, the film and the new book coming very soon from the university of New Mexico press. Alan Rohde, thank you for joining us here on how the West was cast. Well, I'll tell you what, I've had a great time and thanks so much for having me on and uh, looking forward to seeing you in Tucson. Blood on the Moon, a peril-packed saga of the grazing lands, of stampeding cattle and ruthless men who ride by day and kill by night. Blood on the Moon, starring Robert Mitchum, who dares invade a gunsmoke barricade. An adventurous stranger with several notches on his gun, but none on his conscience. Barbara Bell Geddes, who can hold back a man with a bullet or hold him close with a kiss. Robert Preston, the man behind the unrelenting range war. Here is breathtaking adventure, rough, rousing, roaring, to match an absorbing love story as daring and exciting as the old pioneer West. up our look at Blood on the Moon. But before you go, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Western Podcast. That's at, as in the at symbol, Western Podcast, all one word. Tell us your thoughts about Blood on the Moon, or suggest another film that you'd like us to cover on a future episode. And if you enjoy our show and want to help support it, the best way to do that is by subscribing to it on whatever platform you use. Simply click the subscribe button and you'll never miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Matthew Chernoff. And I'm Andrew Patrick Nelson. And you've been listening to How the West Was Cast. Well, that was our show. We thank you kindly for listening and hope you'll come back again real soon. Till then, keep your saddle oiled and your guns greased. We'll be seeing ya.